You are listening to the Imperfect Leader Podcast with Scott Neal, a podcast to help you lead and grow, even with imperfections and challenges. Now here's your host, Scott Neal. Welcome to the Imperfect Leader Podcast, and it's great to have you with us today. I have a very special guest today I'm really excited about. Kaylee Burns is with us. Now, I know many of you listening are not uh, familiar with Kaylee. I want to introduce Kaylee to you, and I'm excited about you getting to know Kaylee. And hopefully uh, you will, once this podcast is over, you'll check out the website with her and uh, maybe get to know her at a, uh, another level, maybe on social media or through social media, or maybe even schedule an appointment with Kaylee, because Kaylee has been with the Northeastern Professional Counseling since July 2015 and currently works with children, adolescents, teenagers, adults, couples, families, and groups. So it is an honor to have Kaylee with us today. Welcome, Kaylee. Thank you so much. I am so glad you are here today. I've got some questions for Kaylee, and I'm just going to begin. We're just going to jump right in and see where we go from here. Now, Kaylee, a lot of people listening to you do not know you, and they may be going, why should I care to listen to Kaylee, Mm -hmm. right? So help us get to know you a little bit. Tell us a little bit about Kaylee. Sure. So I am a licensed professional counselor associate, Mm -hmm. um, also national certified counselor and certified clinical mental health counselor. Okay. Um, I've been in practice now with uh, Northeastern Professional Counseling in Elizabeth City, North Carolina for three years with um, Anna Coker, Mm -hmm. who has um, been on your podcast. Yeah, I think. Um, And I, as you already said, you know, I see various kind of people and uh, socioeconomic statuses and genders and races. Um, I love my job. I love counseling. Um, I never intended to be a counselor. Hmm. Um, I was a school teacher previously. Um, And where was this? Where were you teaching? In Currituck County. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I did my undergraduate at Texas A&M University, and Mm -hmm. then I did my graduate degree at Regent University. Okay, so Um, you were teaching in Currituck. I was teaching in Currituck. And decided you would change careers. Yes. Wow. So it's it's kind of two-folded what happened. Um, The first was I was teaching and as I was teaching I you know just started to care more about the students and their stories and what they were going through um, rather than the curriculum. I just wanted to have them in my classroom at lunchtime and just talk to them and instill you know positive character traits Um, and I kind of got I guess that was the first spark that I had and I wanted to originally be a school counselor and um now just, when you when you sure. began teaching was that a goal to become a school counselor no it was not okay. at all i wanted to be a teacher for the rest of my life i okay. wanted to to change the world one right. child at a time um and then as i got into it i realized you know for me not for every teacher but for me my way to change the world was not through a curriculum it was through yeah. more one-on-one interaction mm-hmm. And that's where I had the idea of being a school counselor. Right. Um, I was going through a really rough time as well in my early 20s and found myself kind of in a, a really dark place. And when I was able to come out of that dark place, I realized, you know, uh, that I not only, you know, wanted to make a difference with kids one on one, but there were probably other people, not just children, yeah. but adults as well that Um, maybe needed to hear my message or um, that I could guide through, you know, the darkness of their life. Yeah. So you began to have this, uh, the sense that you could do more if you went into a counseling profession Mm -hmm. where you could sit down with a child or a parent Mm one-on-one and really impact them more deeply than just a classroom setting 
Correct. with just a bunch of kids in one room. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I could be, you know, I just have a heart for, for people and, um, I would rather spend my time talking to people and getting to know their stories and, um, getting to know them on a personal level versus just, you know, you have the opportunity in a classroom, but it's sure. very different because you're, you have a pacing guide that you have yeah. to follow and you have, um, set things that you have to do and meetings you have to go to. And it's really hard to get to know kids, um, right. intimately as you, you know, would like. Sure. Now you mentioned you went through a dark time. So mm-hmm. this, it sounds to me just in your description that this is personal. Mm-hmm. You went through your own struggles and maybe I'm just assuming and just mm-hmm. kind of guide this as we get into this, but it sounds like you needed someone in your life maybe at that time, maybe when you were a kid mm-hmm. and you want to now be that person to some other kids. That's so correct. this is somewhat personal. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe some of that dark period and sure. and how you came out of that and mm-hmm. now you want to return the favor, if you will, to some Absolutely. other kids or help them? Yeah. Um, in my early twenties, I was diagnosed, um, with the early stages of cancer. I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, um, suffered from severe anxiety and panic attacks. Mm. Um, I didn't really have a permanent place to live at one point. Um, I was suicidal. I I just was not able to function. Mm. Um, and this was all occurring while I was teaching, Um, I had just ended a pretty long-term relationship um, and then found myself in another relationship. It was um, an abusive relationship uh, with an alcoholic who was also a drug dealer, Mm. Um, not really knowing, you know, myself anymore. I lost myself during that time period. And I started, you know, I actually found myself in a cornfield one night and I was laying face down and I was crying and didn't want to live anymore. And I just had this epiphany of, you know, this is not how I want my life to go and I've got to do something about it. And I just felt, you know, this urge in my heart to get up. And so I got up and I decided that regardless of the circumstances of my day, I would start each morning with one kind of moment of gratitude and end each day with one sentence set, even if the, you know, the skies were, if it was pouring rain that day. And so I started that, and when I found myself not wanting to go on, I would drive myself to various churches, even if it was 2 a.m. in the morning, and um, I would sit there and I'd pray, and I'd read my Bible, and I'd buy every devotional I could find and get my hands on. Um, I was a pretty private person during that time, so I didn't share a lot of what was going on in my life or really have like a close, you know, kind of support network. So someone looking at you from the outside would not know would never that all have this known. was going on inside of you. That's correct. Yeah. Wow. Our um, office administrative assistant, uh, Katie Phillips, who works for NPC, she was actually one of my former students. And mm-hmm. she said to me once I finally kind of shared my story with her, you know, I would never have guessed because you wore, you know, a dress and high heels every day. And mm-hmm. um, I had no idea that that was going on in your life. Um, but it was, and you know, over the course of an entire year, um, it was my, my only kind of objective was to find myself and get my life put back together little by little. And, um, on that 365th sunset, I actually felt a a sense of peace Hmm. for the first time, which was pretty cool. All right. I got to ask some questions here. Sure. One. How, where did you find that ability to, you know, get yourself up every day and find something good 
be thankful for the sunrise and the sunset. I mean, something had to have either been built into you as a child. Mm. I'm assuming you had some faith at this time. You were a follower of Christ at this time in Mm -hmm. your life. Is that where you found the strength or what? Did you have someone in your life? Who taught you what to do when you were at the bottom? Mm-hmm. Where did you find that? Well, my mother was very instrumental and very supportive of me during that time. And my faith was everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I tell people all the time, I don't know, you know, how people who aren't spiritual or aren't religious or, um, you know, don't believe in a higher power get through those tough times because that's what I held on to. And I yeah. just kept saying, you know, over and over, God will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, he has plans and hope and a future for you. Yeah. Um, and even when I couldn't really find anything to be grateful for, I would just say, thank you for my breath. Thank yeah. you for the sunshine. Um, those kinds of things. Is it fair to say during this time you were depressed? I mean, this was a deep depression. Absolutely. You were in for like a year, a solid year? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and what, what was, was, was Kaylee a depressed person prior to all of these traumatic events that occurred in your life? Like, did you struggle with that as a child? And it came back or were you pretty happy and healthy and strong and then you went through some things and it turned you more into an anxiety ridden depressed person? Um, I think at periods, you know, throughout my life I was depressed or I was anxious. Um, always struggled with perfectionism, mm-hmm. feeling like I had to be the best at everything, you know, be the best at, you know, grades and sports and um in relationships and that kind of thing, which caused a lot of anxiety. But I also, I feel like in my early 20s was when I became Mm self-aware of what I was doing and the things that had happened to me and, you know, the people I was associating with and realized the path that it was taking me down. So I became more depressed because I finally woke up and I realized, you know, what I was doing and I knew I needed to, you know, needed to make a change. Mm. So you were um, going through this depressed period every day learning how to get yourself up, pull Mm -hmm. yourself up on the 365th day. Mm -hmm. Um, you had this sense of peace. Yeah. I drove myself to the outer banks and I sat, um, it was September 13th. Um, it's been about five years now and I drove my six years almost. Um, and I drove myself to, uh, the outer banks and sat on the sat in the sand and watched the sunset by myself and it was actually the prettiest sunset I've ever seen in my entire life Um, and felt a sense of peace um, because the whole 365 days prior my goal every day was not to kill myself was Mm -hmm. to to just keep moving and keep you know keep living basically and then finally I did find that peace wow so this was a new chapter for you at the end of that year yeah did you have a goal during that year to get to the year like if I can just make it through one full year. I did. I just, the more sunsets I watched, I don't know what that was for me. I'm a nature person. I've all, I've kind of grown up, you know, being outdoors and hunting and fishing and that kind of stuff. And, um, for me, it was just my moment of like peace and moment of prayer and reflection and meditation and helped me to put kind of life in perspective and, I just, during that time, kept reminding myself that, you know, the sun will rise tomorrow and the sun will set tomorrow and life does go on and it will get better. It's just something you have to, you know, kind of hold on and and grit your teeth and bear through it. All right. So before we get into any, any further into your story and kind of what you do now, what about the person who's out there? They're driving down the road. They're listening to this. They're sitting in 
you know, on their bed maybe and they're listening to this podcast and they are, they may not be as low as mm-hmm. you were, but they're struggling. They've got some stuff going on and every day mm-hmm. they're trying to find one more reason to survive the next 24 hours. Yeah. What would you say to that person who's listening right now? I would say one of the things that I regret is that I didn't really truly reach out for help. You know, I think there were some people in my immediate life that saw, you know, other school teachers that saw I was suffering because mm. um, I got sick a lot at school. Um, and so I would, I would encourage, you know, someone who's listening, who's maybe in a dark place to not be afraid to reach out for help. And if you do reach out for help, um, and it's not like if you reach out for a counselor or you go to see a counselor and it's not a good fit to not give up to, you know, not every counselor is for every person. Mm. So to, to try a different counselor maybe, or to see a pastor or a family friend or, you know, a neighbor who's maybe kind of a mentor. Um, I think people, all people go through really hard times and, um, people can relate to that. And sometimes it feels really lonely when you're in that dark place. Cause you look around and you see, you know, the perfect Pinterest boards and, you know, the perfect pictures on people's Facebooks. And we think, you know, why does everybody else have it together and not me? And that's just not true. You know, some people are, are suffering and, and they have suffered in the past and can empathize with you. Um, so it's important to reach out and to, to connect with people so that you don't have to journey through it, you know, alone. Yeah. I love what you said about trying different counselors. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, you know, sat down with some people here at, at, at Forest Park and some other places and, you know, I would recommend, you know, have you considered counseling? Well, I, I did that and it didn't work. You know, mm-hmm. this person didn't understand and they stop. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying is, is you, you might need to continue to search because just because this counselor may not have clicked or was able to kind of gel with your personality. So there is some chemistry when it comes to seeking a counselor. Absolutely. Yeah. And counselors, they, you know, they have different modalities. You know, mm-hmm. you have cognitive behavioral therapists and psychodynamic therapists. And um, it really just depends on what you're going through and your personality and your worldview and your experiences. And um, you might have to, you know, search and, and try three or four different counselors before you find a good fit who can really, you know, gel well with you and, you know, guide you where you need to go. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's interesting. Now today, I know that you're in a much better place Absolutely. Yeah, much stronger. And and uh, but that doesn't mean you don't struggle. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that you've picked up some uh, exercises or some kind of principles that you maybe work through each day. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know in my own life, I went through a a, a period a few years ago where it seems like I was battling anxiety every day and didn't want to admit it and uh, thought I could just deal with it. Just, you know, mind over matter kind of thing. And um, I finally had to go in to a doctor and say, okay, I, I think I might need some help. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, he prescribed something for me and it, it gave me that edge to get up. But that's been seven years ago, probably. Mm-hmm. But every day I still have to reflect on things I've learned over these seven years. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's some people listening who, um, you know, who struggle every day. They're mm-hmm. better, but they still battle and it's, it's still a struggle. It's still a, a constant um, fight, you know, to survive. Mm-hmm. So you are a great example of someone who was at a very low point to the point that you didn't even want to live. Mm-hmm. You got through it each day, and today you're able to turn around now and help other people who are there. Do you see yourself often 
when someone is sitting in front of you? Do you can you recognize some of those Absolutely. symptoms and you go, okay, that's I was there. Yes, yeah. and and so, and every now and then I will share my story with yeah. some of them um, because there is always hope and. Yeah. It, I think it makes my job easier to have lived through that because I can connect with them on that level. And, and having been there firsthand, I can offer, you know, some concrete strategies that, you know, can help them. It's not always just about what a textbook says mm-hmm. or what your training says. Sometimes it's about personal experience. Yeah. And you've been a counselor now for how long? Three years. Three years. Mm-hmm. And this is full time. It's full time. Yeah. yeah. And how many people probably per week do you see or maybe per day? I'm not sure how you. Um, I see about 37 um, to 40 per week is what um, on average. Some weeks it's less. Some weeks it's maybe 33 people. Um, so it's a, it's a slam packed schedule. Yeah. That's a lot. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And you're with someone for what? An hour? An hour. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And that's just all day long. People coming in. Yeah. Uh And you find joy in that, though. I do. I love it. You know, some days are heavier than others. um, But I I just love seeing people, you know, making changes in their life um, and waking up. Yeah. What would someone be might be surprised at when it comes to the the life of a professional counselor? Mm -hmm. You know, what what might be a surprise for them to know about you or about counseling in general? So. One of the things that I, I hear very frequently when people come in and they, they sit on my sofa for the first time, they'll say, you know, I promise I'm not crazy. I don't mm. even know why I'm here. Please yeah. don't judge me. So I promise I'm not crazy. Yeah. And so I think what people would be surprised to know is I don't work with crazy people. Uh. I work with everyday average people and that's what counselors do. Um, I, I don't really believe that anyone is crazy, to mm. be honest. I just think people have, you know, varying levels that's of That's a needs. great point. Yeah, and people I, have such a, a fear of admitting they need to go see a counselor. It's almost like mm-hmm. that is like the ultimate weakness because they think, oh, I can, I can handle this. If their arm was broken, of course they would go to the ER. You know, if they had a blood disorder or something like that, they would go in. But it's hard to get some people to admit mm-hmm. that it's that you need to go see a counselor and it's okay. And it's okay. Yeah. You don't have to be severely disturbed right. before you go, you know, see a counselor. It's actually a, a true sign of strength when somebody says, Hey, I need a little bit of guidance. Um, I need a little bit of help here. I need a, a, an additional tool for support. Yeah. How, what is, um, what's typical as far as how many times a person comes in for counseling? Oh, it just depends. Um, it really just depends on the person and their situation. Some people come in two or three sessions, um, and then they've got kind of what they've needed. Mm-hmm. They've, you know, I always say people come in with the answers. They just need help revealing those answers. Mm-hmm. Um, we do sometimes give advice, but that's really not our job. It's just to guide people. Um, but then there's, you know, there's people that I've been seeing now for three years, you know, on a weekly basis um, who need, you know, maybe have some, you know, more severe traumas in their life and need some additional help. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk through a little bit about what you do, because I know you specialize in a lot of different areas. And mm-hmm. and I want to kind of get into two today on, on this podcast. And I'm going to I'd love to have you back in another time and maybe talk through some other ones that you uh, specialize in. But today I want to want to talk about kids, parenting, discipline, because that is a huge topic and it is confusing to a lot of parents, as you well know, you know, um, um, you have this new baby. And you, mm-hmm. and you're so cute and cuddly and you think, oh, this is, this is wonderful. And then the baby starts 
growing up and begins to not necessarily follow, you know, your instructions and you're thinking, you know, what do I do? So who do you see often walking through your door? What kind of parent? What's a common issue when they come in for, for help as a, as a parent? Mm-hmm. And so the parents that I see, you know, most commonly are exasperated parents. Mm-hmm. They've tried everything that they possibly can and nothing is working. Um, and they, you know, of course I have parents that come into and they just need, a, you know, a little a tip or a strategy here mm-hmm. or there. But most are kind of at their wits end and they don't, they feel like their child's out to destroy their life <laughs> and they don't know what to do about it. And so they come, um, a lot of times parents will bring their children to me and we'll just say like, fix them. Hmm. Um, but that's really not how so it works. So often parents will bring a child with them into counseling? They is will. that common? It is common, okay. yes. Um, and how I get to counsel parents is mostly I see the child first and I realize it's not really the child's issues, but it's how the parent is responding to the child. Okay, so a parent will call and make an appointment for their child. Correct. Because they think, okay, the child's broken or the child needs some help. Mm-hmm. The child comes in, you begin to interact with the child and go, okay, it's not just the child, it's the parent. Uh, and then I tell I the parents, it. I have bad news for you. It's you. It's not your, you know, your wow. kid. And how, or, what's the common reaction when you say that? They're a little surprised. Yeah. I do it with a smile. Um, <laughs> sure. I don't do it to be mean or ugly. Um, and parents love their kids. I've mm-hmm. never met a parent that didn't love their child. Um, sometimes parents have weird ways of showing that mm-hmm. love. Um, but they all love their kids. It's it's just, you know, what works for that family. And I, I tell them, you know, I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to, you know, tell you you're a horrible parent or what you're doing is wrong. I'm just here to find, you know, help you find something that's more effective, that works for you and works for your family. Yeah. Is there a typical age you see a lot? Like it seems to be when the child gets around seven or eight or is it 10 or 12 or what's a common age when the parents just become this exasperated parent or is there a common age i don't know there's not really a common age i find though that i see a lot of teenagers okay because that is a very there's a very volatile period in their life especially with all of the bullying and the social media and um they have a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression um is that more common today much more okay. common, yeah. Because of the reasons you just gave? Absolutely. I can't tell you how many kids, um, teenagers, come sit on my sofa and tell me that they're just crushed because somebody ended their streak on Snapchat, which mm. basically, you know, you have to, to keep a streak, you have to talk to somebody every day. Um, and some of these kids have 50 to 100 people that they're trying to keep this streak with. And, yeah. you know, I ask them, um, you know, well, what are you sending them every day? And they say, a picture of my forehead or a picture of, you know, the ground. And to me, that's just so bizarre because they're, you know, there's so, life is short and there's so much more that these kids could be doing to feel fulfilled and get connected. Um, but they're, they're dating through, you know, Snapchat by basically sending random pictures of whatever they're passing at that moment. And then when somebody ends the the streak, you know, they've put all of their worth into that and now they're left feeling crushed and that they're unworthy and unloved and not wanted because, you know, somebody dissed them on social media or ended their, their Snapchat streak. Yeah. Wow. And what, what advice do you give the parent who, mm-hmm. let me ask you this, are, are many of the parents surprised to learn that about their child? Yes. Parents I have found, not all, but a lot of parents don't do Snapchat or right. don't do Twitter, or Instagram or Vine or um, Facebook. And so they don't know what's going on and they don't know the terminology and the language. And 
Um, I really don't like for teens to sleep with their cell phones mm-hmm. next to them because they, they are so much anxiety. It's like this pressure to, you know, be in touch with the rest of the world at all times. And so, you know, they'll wake up in the middle of the night and they're scrolling endlessly and commenting and liking. In the middle of the and, night. In the middle of the night, yeah. And parents, I think, oftentimes don't realize how much time their child is spending on social media. Um, and kids aren't always honest with them, you know, when parents do ask. Yeah. And what, what's a common response from the parent when you finally look at them and say, your child has, is wrapped up in social media, they're finding their self-worth in it, or their lack of self-worth mm-hmm. is based on the streak that ended. Mm-hmm. What's, what's the common response from them? Just surprise or surprise. denial or yeah. what? I think surprise, um, especially when it comes to, you know, and I, I, of course, always ask for permission, and I encourage teenagers to be open and honest with their parents about what they are doing, especially mm-hmm. if it's dangerous. Um, and I find that there's a lot of surprise when parents discover that their child is sending, you know, nude pictures or inappropriate things um, that they shouldn't be doing. They're not having safe Internet practices. Um, and sometimes and we would have you, to have that. Would you say that is a, a lot more common than what maybe the average person listening to this podcast might think? They think their kids only, you know, they're just sharing pictures. They're mm-hmm. that's innocent. You know, they're just asking how people are doing and talking about school. What would you say? I'm trying to think of a way to ask it. More of a percentage, or is it much higher as far as the inappropriate material that they're sharing yeah. than what the average person thinks? So, younger kids really want attention and power and control. And older kids really want acceptance and they want the shock factor. Okay. And so they're posting a lot of things that have the shock factor. And in order to be accepted, you have to kind of adhere to that shock factor. You have to participate with it. And there's a lot of pressure. There's so many good kids, you know, Christian kids, even kids who are not Christians, who, um, you know, do well in school, they're well behaved at home, who are participating in some of these inappropriate conversations just as uh, as a means of acceptance because they want to fit in. They don't want to be targeted. They don't want to be bullied. Um, and so they do some of the things that their peers are doing. Now, is it correct to say that that is one of the reasons why it creates such anxiety within them? Because at the core of who they are, they know this is not appropriate. You know, this is not the way I was raised. This is not what I was taught. But in order to be accepted, I need to, you know, send these pictures or participate in this conversation or whatever. And it's kind of creating that that tension between mm-hmm. what they've been taught from their parents and or what their church says or and then what they're actually doing. I would imagine it would create anxiety. Absolutely, yeah. They... Um, I think they they realize maybe not always consciously, but even subconsciously that their you know internal core values aren't aligning mm-hmm. with their behaviors and with anyone, whether they're a kid or not, um, that causes some depression and some anxiety when you realize you know what you're doing is not who you are. Yeah. Well, I can imagine a parents listening to this right now going, okay, when I get home, I've got to find out everything that they're doing because it freaks a parent out. So here's what, what, what I will say. say. Yeah. Do not take your child's cell phone away. I think that is is probably a really horrible consequence just to cold turkey snatch their phone from them. And, and even, if, even if they find something inappropriate? If they find something inappropriate, they might need to have a conversation. Um, It's about the relationship. And you, of course, want to tailor their usage. What research says is about two hours a day of screen time is what's appropriate. Um, And and I think definitely at night, I I would say that there's no need for them to have their cell phone. 
Um, but you want to you want to talk with your kids. You don't want to go snoop through everything because kids are going to be kids and they're mm-hmm. going to have some off color conversations. But you need to know, you know, what they're using, what kind of terminology they're using. Um, are they, you know, sometimes parents don't realize their kids are anxious or are depressed. You know, talk to them about the pressure that social media places on them um, and what is reality because yeah. Pinterest and um, you know, all of those Facebook pictures and Instagram posts is not, it's not reality. It's what somebody has altered to look the best that they can look and, mm-hmm. um, sound the best that they can sound. And kids have really high expectations of how they should look and dress in order to be accepted, but it's just not reality. So what about a parent who has not, um, been involved much? You know, they just have been making an assumption that their kids aren't doing anything inappropriate. They're Mm -hmm. probably only on their phone for a couple hours a day. Mm -hmm. They hear something like this and then they really start thinking, oh, you know what? Maybe maybe there are some things going on. And now that I think about it, they do take their phone, you know, into their to their bedroom at night and sleep with it. And they're starting to go, "Okay, I need to do something. How do they step into something that they've been out of for a long time. Maybe this is a 15 year old or a 14 year old and they've had their phone for years. Mm -hmm. You know, how does a parent begin to get involved now Mm -hmm. without it creating a lot of anxiety within the kid or anger or whatever? Um, One of the things that I love when parents do is create their own Snapchat, you know, Mm. accounts and become their child's friend and Instagram. Obviously your kid can can block certain posts and not share everything but you at least become aware of maybe even friending some of their friends you know what is kind of going on in their world you know what is cool what's not cool such a more of a proactive way than a reactive way yes and just build a relationship don't um kids really don't care how much you know until they know how much you care and they don't want to hear what they should and shouldn't be doing they they just want to be able to talk to their parents and they want to feel accepted by their parents um sexuality is a huge thing now with teenagers um and many teenagers do struggle with their sexuality and they're terrified of just saying i struggle with you know am i lesbian am i homosexual am i bisexual am i transgender even um and now would you say that that they struggle with it more today than in the past i would say yes um because it's been brought to the forefront more now there's just more conversation about it or what's your what's your assessment of that i i think because you know of everything that's going on in Mm -hmm. social media and um you know kids I think kids are becoming more accepting now okay. and they want to be their true selves. And, um, it's, it's, so I, I heard just the other day from a teenager, you know, I can openly admit that I am, you know, bisexual at school and nobody really cares. But then I go home and I feel, you know, ridiculed and I feel, you know, berated and I, um, I can't even, you know, I just have to smile and just eat my dinner and then just go to my room. Um, because I think sometimes, parents do not all parents but sometimes parents do have kind of an old school approach um and are very quick to say well that's wrong or that's right and maybe some of their things are wrong um but kids aren't going to to be open or um, think about their choices um unless there's conversation first the moment you say you know well you shouldn't be doing that or that's wrong or in the bible it says your the kids are just turning their ears off they don't mm. even care what the parent has to say after that so you have to um, have open dialogue with them even if you disagree with their behaviors or their choices so the approach matters 
approach greatly. matters. It's everything. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I have to ask, you got this, you know, uh, parent whose child has recently said, mom, I think I'm bisexual or mm-hmm. I'm gay and everything inside the parent, you know, may want to just react immediately. Well, that's not true or something's wrong with you or, mm-hmm. you know, you believe lies and they're just starting to do exactly what you just encouraged them not to do. And that's begin to quote scriptures and mm-hmm. at least their interpretation of those scriptures and mm-hmm. etc. What should that parent do? Because I would imagine that a parent is somewhat shocked. Of course. So what would you say to that parent? Here's what you should do if your if your teenager comes out and says, "Okay, mom, I'm gay." Well, first, don't respond. Okay. Um, take some time to reflect on what it is that you're going to say and how you're going to handle the situation. Um, you know, initially, I would say something like, "Wow, like that must have taken you know taken a lot of courage to come out and say thank you for sharing that with me." Um, I'm going to think about this. Can we talk some more tomorrow? And then think about it because oftentimes, you know, you're, you know, when you hear something like that, a parent's adrenaline is spiked mm-hmm. and they're, they're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, what, what is this? What does this mean? And they're not thinking clearly. And then they respond and the child ends up feeling more ashamed and more hurt and then doesn't want to be vulnerable anymore because mm-hmm. the response was not favorable. So then they shut down um, and then maybe they don't want to share other aspects of their life. So first would be to think about it and go ahead and think about that now because Mm -hmm. you never know what your son or daughter is going to tell you tomorrow absolutely so go ahead and be proactive and think through okay if my child came and said Mm -hmm. this to me how would i respond yeah yeah and then when you're you know asking questions or you're approaching it you want to ask open-ended questions you don't want to start quoting scriptures or saying because that what closes closes the conversation down yeah right And I'm not saying that you can't ever do that, but you have to first build the rapport and build the relationship that says, I accept you, you know, um, and acceptance doesn't mean you like it. It doesn't mean you condone it. It just means it is what it is. Um, You want to convey that message first before you really start to challenge some of those thoughts. In therapy, I don't even start to challenge teenagers really into like the third or fourth session. Mm. Um, So you just mainly listen. Mainly listen, yeah. Find out where they are and what's going on. Open-ended questions. You know, I I try not to ask yes or no questions or, you know, give them advice. Well, here's what you should do or you need to go tell your parents right away. I just listen and ask open-ended questions. Um, And then if I feel like maybe they have, you know, some cognitive distortions, then, you know, the third or fourth session, then I'll start to challenge some of that thinking because they know that I'm doing it then from a place of love Mm. and not from a place of judgment. Right. That's good. Yeah. So when you ask those open-ended questions, you keep the conversation going so that you can even get possibly even some more information from them that can help you really find out where your child is. Mm -hmm. I guess that'd be similar to going to a doctor and as soon as you walk in, the doctor asks you, you know, what, what brings you in today? And you give them one thing and then they start Mm -hmm. to try to diagnose everything. And you're like, well, hold on a minute. You know, I've got Four other symptoms, too, which could change the diagnosis, I guess. Absolutely. So it's, it's, it's keeping the conversation going. Correct. That's good. Yeah. And I think a lot of parents, unfortunately, we, we overreact as soon as we hear one thing that our child says. And it closes down. They go to the room. And then we and wanna... not to take it personal. I mm. stress that so much to parents. If your child is drinking or doing drugs or... Um, you know, struggling with their sexuality. It's not necessarily because you did something so wrong and now they've made these choices. 
and parents will go into freak out mode. Well, how can I immediately stop this because this makes me look bad? Mm. Um, and sometimes kids need the freedom to fail. You know, they need to. Um, I always say, you know, when you're when you're teaching your child how to swim and you're in a pool, you know, you hold on to them, you teach them how to kick and everything, but eventually you have to let go. And every time if their head goes under, you jump in to save them, they never learn how to swim. And so sometimes it's really, really hard for parents to watch their kid's head go underwater a couple of times and not rescue them um, to let them get that bad grade, you know, because they didn't do their homework. Because in those experiences, kids are learning. Yeah. That's good. Mm-hmm. That alone, what you, the advice you've just given, the truth you've just given alone would save so many arguments mm-hmm. and so many just uh, relationships that begin to rust. Mm-hmm. And, and often, I would imagine, you know, a 14-year-old, 15-year-old, really any age, but especially around that time, they're closed down for mom and dad. They, they go to their room or they go wherever, and their mm-hmm. phone gives them access to people who will accept them everywhere. Absolutely. And then it just begins to destroy the relationship at home and build some kind of sometimes a faux relationship Mm -hmm. with somebody else. And because there's always going to be somebody out there who will accept whatever it is you do. So as a parent, you might as well be the one who tries to create the most Mm -hmm. accepting environment as possible. That's good. Well, you know, parenting is difficult. It's challenging. We've already talked about a few of those challenges. What are a few skills parents need to have when it comes to raising children and effectively disciplining their children to help them become um, positive members of society? What are just a few basics? We've been talking about some pretty serious things, but I would imagine that there are parents who just miss some basic things that would help their kids. So maybe a couple of common things that you tell parents when they come in. Sure. Um, so there's so many vital skills, you yeah. know, but I like to keep it kind of simple, you know, okay. because it really does boil down to what that relationship dynamic looks like. And there is no textbook on parenting. You know, there is no do X, Y, and Z and your child will end mm-hmm. up perfect. That mm-hmm. doesn't work. Um, when it comes to discipline, um, this is where I see the most issues because it's ineffective disciplining, but very well intended, but it's actually like fueling a fire, you know, dumping gasoline on a fire and then the fire explodes and then the parent gets burnt and now they're crying, but hmm. they escalated the situation. The parent escalated the, the parent situation. escalated okay. the situation. So with discipline, um, I'm going to kind of go over five R's of consequences okay. that I feel are important. Um, the first is that it, it's got to be respectful. If you're shouting at your kid because they just shouted at you, um, you're telling them you have to be respectful to me, but I don't have to be respectful to you. And that is very confusing for a child's brain. Um, you know, adults, and just to touch on the brain real quickly, you know, um, there's there's two main operating systems. There's the limbic system and then the prefrontal cortex. Kids do not have a fully developed prefrontal cortex, so they cannot make logic of things like mm-hmm. an adult can. And your brain is developing up until about age 22 to 25. Um, so kids' brains are confused. You have mm-hmm. to be consistent and you have to practice what you preach. And so... Being respectful is the first first R, first um, most important thing. Um, and I, I like to refer to consequences as consequences, not punishment. Okay. Um, punishment is not very effective. Punishment um, shifts blame on kids. It causes kids to feel shame. Um, and punishment oftentimes inflicts pain, you know. Mm. Um, can spanking your child work? Yes, if you're consistent. 
but it's going to work because it's instilling fear. It's not instilling respect. So consequences are more effective than punishment. Um, the second R is related to the offense. So if you can, and it's not, it's not always easy, um, a lot of times parents, especially with teenagers, will resort to right away, take your cell phone away, which if you take their cell phone away and that's their sole source of acceptance, now you've just created an even bigger issue because um, now they're going to have to resort to other unhealthy areas to get that acceptance. So you want to try to make it um, related to the offense if possible um, and try to implement natural and logical consequences. Um, so it wouldn't make sense. Let's just say you have a toddler who um, pees on the toilet seat all the time um, or leaves the toilet seat maybe up. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're leaving the toilet seat up, you have to ask yourself, what is the natural consequence? Well, there really isn't a natural consequence other than the fact that it's annoying. So sometimes you have to kind of let those things go because mm-hmm. there's no natural consequence. But if they're peeing on the toilet seat, you know, and you sit in it every time and it's really gross and unsanitary, now there's a natural consequence. So you would say, you know what, you know, little Johnny, now you're going to have an extra chore. You're going to have to help mommy clean the toilet because it's really dirty. And I want you to take this brush and you have to scrub. And every time you do this, you're going to have to clean this toilet. Um, So that's kind of a related um, consequence to the offense. And um, if there's not a natural consequence, parents really have to evaluate why am I so upset? Why am I so upset because, you know, my daughter's twirling around in the store? Mm -hmm. Is it because it's annoying or because it's going to break something? Um, That's really, really good. Yeah. I think a lot of parents, I don't think I know a lot of parents, I have done this when my children were little, would just be upset over Mm -hmm. something that was bothering me. Mm -hmm. I wanted to watch a television show Mm -hmm. or I wanted to read a book in the middle of the living room Mm -hmm. and they wanted to play Mm -hmm. and they would get in trouble because they were disrupting my quiet time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really good. And speaking on that, I I really love to work from a harm reduction model. So if I have a kid who maybe, you know, a toddler who comes into my office and is like jumping on my sofa, yeah, it's really annoying and their shoes are dirty and they're getting mud everywhere. So I say to them, wow, you can jump so high. That's amazing. I've never seen a kid jump that high. That's incredible. Do you think you could stand on the floor and jump and try to reach the ceiling? You know, how high can you go then? And then I hold my hands up and they try to like, you know, reach and touch my hands. Um, but that allows them to have the behavior that they want to have instead of just saying, sit down. I'm not going to tell you again. Stop acting like that. Um, it gives them the chance to be a kid, but in a constructive way, mm. a way that doesn't, you know, damage furniture or something like that. It lets them, you know, be a kid. So you may not have the, you know, the behavior 100% eliminated, but parents have got to try to kind of figure out how they can tailor that to to work for their child. That's good. Yeah. Um, so related to the offense is important, natural and logical consequences, reasonable in duration, especially with younger children, because they don't have the full working memory. And, you know, a kid will say, you know, I, I lost my toys and I haven't had my toys in two weeks. And I'll say, well, what happened? I don't know. My parents just hate me. They just took my toys away. Well, that's really not what happened. Maybe they threw a ball and it broke a window. Um, but kids forget by then. And so then it's not effective. Then it just feels like torture to them. Um, so, you know, maybe a day for a four-year-old, but then a week for a 14-year-old, mm-hmm. you know, losing a privilege um, is reasonable in duration. Um, consequences always need to be revealed in advance. And this is, this is something I really, really stress because 
kids can't make wise choices if they don't know what's going to happen if they make a poor choice. The reason why I don't speed is because I've known for a long time that, you know, I will likely get a speeding ticket. Um, so, re, you know, revealing it in advance saying, you know, if this happens, then I'm going to have to take away this privilege um, is important for kids and then have them repeat it back to you. And you say, great, I'm so glad we're on the same page. Um, so you have respectful, related to the offense, reasonable in duration, revealed in advance, repeated back to you. Um, and this is from Amy McCready. She's the, the founder of Positive Parenting Solutions. She has a lot of amazing stuff on her website. Um, and I added kind of one, one little thing to that, um, you know, when I work with parents is to instill hope yeah. to say, I know you're a smart kid and you're going to make a really good choice. Even if in the back of your mind, you're like, Oh my God, I don't know if this is ever going to work. Um, always state that. And eventually something clicks and the child's like, yeah, I am a good kid and I can make a better choice. That's great. Well, that's gold for parents. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. I could talk about parenting for a long time. I want to move on to sure. another area. Um, I know that an area where you specialize in as well is childhood trauma and how it affects the brain. Uh, talk us through a little bit about when you say trauma, what do you mean? I think maybe it's possible someone listening thinks of trauma. They think of just a a car accident or some mm -hmm. kind of physical injury, which is traumatic, Very but that's not all that trauma involves. So okay. what are some other things or what do you mean when you say trauma? So I define trauma a little bit differently than most. Um, I define trauma as when a person is overwhelmed by something not within their control. So it doesn't have to be war, abuse, rape, or a major car accident, you know, to be considered trauma. Um, there's obviously varying levels of trauma, um, but something as simple as not getting picked for a school team can be traumatic because it, it fe the child feels like it's not within their control. Um, it's also important to note that our bodies can respond differently to trauma. So, uh, you know, if I were to get into a little fender bender, I may be able to bounce back within a week, whereas it could be devastating to somebody else. It really just depends on our genetics and our biological makeup and experiences, how we're going to respond to that trauma. Um, and trauma is everywhere. You know, it's it's estimated that at about 63% of adults have experienced at least one traumatic event in childhood. Mm. Um, so it's it affects everybody, and it affects nearly every every family as well. 63% mm -hmm. have experienced some kind of trauma as a child. Yes. And you're saying that that the traumatic event affects the actual forming or the formation of the brain or the development of the brain. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And explain, explain what that means. Sure. So early on in childhood, um, your, a child's brain is trying to develop the prefrontal cortex and it's operating mostly from the limbic system. And our brain is constantly recording information. Um, and one of the things that I see with trauma is um, those memories kind of almost become ingrained in the limbic system and get triggered later on as an adult. So um, for example, let's say, you know, somebody was, was raped when they were 10 and, um, on the day of that rape, there was coffee brewing, you know, in a nearby room or their abuser smelled like coffee. And then when they're 25, every time they smell coffee, they get sick or they feel nauseous or something just doesn't fit right. And that's because those memories got engraved in that, in that brain, in that limbic system, part of the brain. Um, let, me, let me ask a sure. question on that. And that is possible 
the person feels these sickness, as you mentioned, when they smell coffee or get near someone who might smell like coffee, and they don't know why they feel sick, right? Mm -hmm. So they may not even have a memory of that particular traumatic event. Maybe it happened very young, and they don't really have a detailed memory of that. Mm -hmm. So there are people who struggle with a particular, you know, I don't know what it is about this that bothers me, but it does. And it could be connected to something. Is that what, is that what I'm understanding? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes it is the case that there are repressed memories, and, and sometimes we have to work through those. Um, but our brain, our, our brain reacts to things in our conscious environment, and things from early childhood can be triggered by what we're seeing in our conscious environment today. That's fascinating. Yeah. I remember reading something um, a while back. And it was said in a pithy way, so you can remember it. It said that our brains often, not literally our brains, but our mind mm-hmm. often forgets uh, what our body remembers. Absolutely. And I thought that was very interesting. It's like the, the actual body, your brain, mm-hmm. the actual material remembers things that you consciously forget, mm-hmm. but your body remembers it. Absolutely. And that's when you get next to that person or you hear a song mm-hmm. or you smell the coffee or something like that. That's mm-hmm. very interesting. And, and are the repressed memories, is that because it's an, it's an attempt to um, cope? It's a coping mechanism, I assume? Yeah, a lot of times people disassociate from their trauma because it is so overwhelming. So they kind of disconnect from their body. Um, and that's why when you, you know, when police go to ask somebody who's just assaulted, they'll say, you know, well, what did your attacker look like? You know, what did, what was the skin color? What was, you know, the eye color? Um, you know, the hair color, and they're like, well, I don't know. And they're like, what do you mean you don't know? You were looking at them, weren't you? Um, and that's because the, the brain can sometimes just kind of shut down. Um, and during that time, during those traumas, you know, there's a chemical in our brain, it's called cortisol. That cortisol rises, and when that happens, um, all of our energy, all of our um all of our energy is being directed towards that. And so the mechanisms in our body that are um, crucial for survival keep going, but everything else turns off because it needs to reserve energy to deal with that, whatever the trauma is. And so when you have repeated traumas, like repeated abuse, um, you oftentimes see a lot more physical symptoms like hair falling out or a person's skin's really dry or their nails are brittle or they have um, severe digestive issues. Um, because they, their cortisol in their brain is at an elevated rate, you know, constantly. So the elevated cortisol creates these other problems within the body. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It allows you to, to survive, you know, cortisol is a good chemical because, you know, somebody's running at you in a, a parking lot at night. It's like, oh gosh, something's wrong. I need to do something about it. But when that, those cortisol levels stay raised all of the time, that's really detrimental and can cause, you know, um, physical, mental, and emotional deficiencies. Wow. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So you mentioned a moment ago that your brain records everything. Mm-hmm. So even though you do not have memory of that particular event, mm-hmm. it is there somewhere. Yes. It's been recorded. Uh-huh. I guess the way to look at that would be something it's, you know, I know the file is somewhere on this computer, mm-hmm. but it is, I don't know where it Recorded is. You can't, and file away. yeah, you can't find the connection, mm-hmm. but it's there. Then someone can search the computer in a more thorough way and find the missing file. Is that the way it is in our brain? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we can often, uh, I would imagine we often, um, 
those memories that are there are those 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 events that occurred affect the way we interact with people mm-hmm. and we don't know why we act a certain way. Correct. Yeah. So we could be depressed but not know why or mm-hmm. feel fearful and not know why or have anxiety and not sure why. Or hyper vigilant. Right. Some people who maybe experienced a lot of abuse in childhood as an adult, they'll always sit where they can see the door, you know, mm-hmm. at places, at restaurants and um, concerts and events where they can, you know, they're always on alert, basically. They're hypervigilant and easily startled. Um, that can be one of the, the effects of trauma as well. Yeah. Let's imagine you're a school teacher, as you were, or a school counselor, or maybe um, we have people listening who probably um, serve in some kind of student ministry, maybe at a church or something. So they're around kids who are not their children. So they don't know if this child had a traumatic event. However, there are some odd behaviors or there are some, you, you wonder because you see certain you know um, symptoms, if you will. What are a few common traits of children who have been negatively affected by trauma? What are some things to look for maybe? So in school settings, um, kids will have a really hard time focusing. Okay. They may be really jittery, they may forget their homework. Um, they don't know why they're doing the things that they do, um, easily startled and in middle schools and high schools, there's tends to be a lot of substance abuse Mm -hmm. with kids who have experienced trauma, um, insomnia, kids who, um, are sleeping throughout the day. You know, obviously if there's a medical condition that's different, but are sleeping, you know, at school might be having, you know, really volatile, you know, home environments when they get home from school. And so they're up all night worried and then their time to sleep is during the day. Mm-hmm. Um, or some kids sleep too much because of depression, hypersomnia. Yeah. So if you notice certain behaviors are certain, you're concerned, you know, you've listened to something like this, maybe you've read a book and you notice these things going on with a, a child in your classroom or maybe at your church or whatever, what would you recommend the, the leader to do, the, the teacher to do? Or Yeah. Um, so first, connect with the child. You know, And when you do that, you want to focus more on their feelings so that you can get more information. Yeah. You know, Not just coming out and saying, you know, why are you sleeping in class or why didn't you do your homework? But saying, you know, uh, wow, it seems like school's becoming really stressful for mm-hmm. you, you know. Um, is there anything I can help you with? You know, is there anything you want to talk about? You know, um, how was your night last night? You know, what was that like for you? Um, just kind of bonding with them. And then when you connect with a child on their feelings and their emotions and you validate that, they're more willing to open up and say what's really going on so that you can help them. Um, the second thing would be to to talk to a trained professional, um, whether a school counselor or a principal or um, a community counselor, um, to see if there's something that you can do or to give the child and their family a referral. Yeah. And too often um, people will respond only to the behavior mm-hmm. and then want to discipline the child for sleeping in class or discipline the child for being late. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't fix anything. No. And, and the analogy that I kind of give is when you go to the doctor, um, you know, and you're, you're stating all of your symptoms and, um, you know, you have strep throat um, the doctor just doesn't say, well, here's some Tylenol or just get some mm-hmm. rest mm-hmm. or just do this because that's treating just the symptoms instead of the core root of the issue. Yeah. And you need an antibiotic. Um, so with kids, you, you have to look deeper than the behavior. You have to say what's causing the behavior. And that's what you have to treat um, rather than just the symptoms. Yeah. yeah. And that takes time. It that does. takes a lot of involvement. And I, 
you know, I think I, I can imagine that teachers often do not have that amount of time when they have 30 kids in their classroom and maybe three or four, you know, are going through these, these or at least exhibiting some of these behaviors and you're concerned about it. I'd imagine a lot of kids just get overlooked mm-hmm. because they just don't have the time to get involved in these kids' lives. Yeah, and, and a, a simple smile goes such a long mm-hmm. way when you're teaching. Um, I had several kids after I left teaching that said, you know, you're the only teacher who ever really paid attention to me. Wow. Um, and in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I don't remember that. Yeah. But I did. I addressed, you know, I tried to address kids as they came into the room and I tried to compliment them, you know, when I thought their shoes looked cool or their mm-hmm. hair looked neat. Um, and, and that goes a long way because sometimes kids aren't getting that oh. at home and they need, they need somebody to smile at them and they need somebody to give them a high five or say, you know what, you maybe got a D on the test, but I know you worked really hard and you've been studying, you've been staying after school and you should be really proud of yourself. Um, kids start to think that they're, they're not very worthy if they don't have good grades, but you know, school doesn't come easy for a lot of children and they may be giving 110% and they need somebody to validate that. Yeah, that's so good. Well, one more question on this, and then we'll we'll move on. There are no doubt people uh, listening, and I see this often here at Forest Park with the families who attend here. They have, you know, m- maybe they went through a divorce and they remarried, and the family has now blended, and the child from, you know, the 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 woman you've married, she had two children, and the child coming into this. You know, new family went through some traumatic events, mm-hmm. whether it was a terrible divorce that mom and dad went through or, or whatever. And here you are the step parent, you know, and you're seeing some things within this stepchild mm-hmm. that you're concerned about. And you've already given some advice on what to do as far as listening and, and these things. I'm just curious. That's a more intimate relationship. They're living now under your roof. Mm-hmm. And there may even be a, well, you're not my dad. You know, you're not my mom. Stay out of my life, especially if they're a teenager. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, maybe some piece of advice that you could give to that stepdad or that stepmom who looks across and sees this kid and goes, you know, this 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 kid's got some issues, some some real problems, and I want to help, but I don't know how to break through. I don't know what to do. Yeah. Um, gosh, blended families, that's, that's such yeah. a big challenge. And um, first, you really, again, back to building the relationship, just kind of talk to them. Yeah get to know, you know, what their day was like and who their friends are. Um, you know, kids, they really want to know how much you care, um, before they know they want to, you know, they're interested in what is everything that you know, and you're trying to tell them, um, get educated on trauma. You know, if you're a step parent and you, you don't know the the child's whole history because you haven't been there, maybe you're newly married, um, just kind of get educated on trauma, what trauma does to the brain and, um, make sure that your your expectations are reasonable for the developmental you know age of the child, and then take that trauma into consideration as well. Um, devise a, a solid support system. You know, talk to professionals, um, talk to teachers, um, talk to your friends. You know, family. Um, take care of yourself. I always say you can't you can't nurture others from a dry well. Mm-hmm. If your well is empty. Um, you have nothing left to give. So it's exhausting sometimes to be a parent. Um, And especially if the child has had, you know, some traumatic events or history um, and you have to really take care of yourself and nurture your own soul first before you can nurture your, your child's soul. That's so good. Well, one, one, you know, benefit of, of obviously being the step parent is you're not as you see the child a lot more than the teacher sees the child. Mm -hmm. 
there's not a rush. So you've got some time to build that relationship with them. So you would just say, hey, just start very slowly. Just get to know the child and uh, interact with them. Don't go to the symptoms. I assume, you know, don't don't run to the behaviors unless it's something obviously that's dangerous yes. or something that's hurting someone else. But just slow down and just start building that bridge mm-hmm. to this child. Yeah, offer as much as, you know, acceptance, again, doesn't mean you like it or condone it. But right. kids need to know that they're accepted, that the regardless of what they do or how they act, at the end of the day, they're still going to be loved. You know, maybe there's a parent who says, well, what you just, the piece of advice you gave about, you know, learning, educating yourself. And they think, I don't even know where to begin. Like, I don't even know how to begin understanding trauma or what to do. Would you recommend maybe them go in and and speak with a school counselor and just say, hey, you know, I've got this teenager now in my home Mm -hmm. and I just would love to have some advice. Is that something that often a school counselor will provide? Yes. Yeah. School counselors are pretty open to um, working, you know, with people in the community and with parents and um, can talk a little bit about trauma. Um, And that would be free. They could just schedule an appointment, go in, sit down and say, I just need three or four things I could do here. Yeah. Yeah. Social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors. So they can make an appointment like with you just for that purpose. Just come in and say, hey, I just want to, I'm not bringing my child in. Mm -hmm. This is for me as a parent. I need some advice. I need some guidance. Correct. That's yeah, great. Well, Kaylee, this has been wonderful. So much information that you've given. This is this is awesome. I think I could do this another hour. <laughs> well, thank uh, you. Because I have so me. many questions. I got I got a few questions now. That's just sure. more kind of personal about you, just for people to get to know you a little bit more. Okay. Um, tell me tell me your best day off. My best day yeah. off is. What would you do? Me by myself yeah. in the middle of the woods hunting. Okay, that hunting. Would be, yeah, and what, a, what would you be hunting? Probably deer. Oh. I'm a big outdoorsman. Okay, yeah. that's great. Yeah. And maybe even reading a book in the evening or yeah. something, a bonfire, something simple. I love to be alone. I love to, to read, and, and I love to, to be in nature. Yeah. Now, do you have any hobbies? Lots of hobbies. Okay, give us um, one. So I love my job, actually. Surprisingly, one of the things I find most fun is when I get home, I do research different disorders and Mm -hmm. things that are going on. And I love to counsel various areas. You know, a lot of counselors have one specific niche that they stick to. And I'm kind of diverse. You know, I do some couples counseling and some parenting type stuff. And I I work a lot with addiction as well. Um, so that's a hobby of mine. I okay. also love to garden. Mm. Um, I've got a big garden at my house. Um, I love four wheels. Vegetables, a flower yeah. garden. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, I think la- last summer I think I had like 32 different things. Wow. Yeah, in, in the garden. And you give away a lot of the vegetables. I do, or I yeah. can, I do some canning okay. as well, and and give to my family. Yeah. Um, I love to fish. Um, love to read. Uh, I, I like anything really outdoors. I was going to say, camping. that sounds like just anything you can do outside. Yes. So yeah. that's got to be difficult to sit all day long in a small office and counsel 37, 40 people a week. It is. And I have to be mindful, yeah. you know, of, of my own limits, you know, because again, you can't, you can't nurture others from a dry well. Mm. And what, you know, what I feel God has called me to do in, in my life is very different than some of my passions and my hobbies. You know, if I had my pick, I might be like, I don't know, a hunting guide or mm. um, working, I don't know, on, in a park somewhere or something yeah. like that. Um, so I make sure that I, I spend lots of time, you know, outside of the office doing mm-hmm. the things that I love that fill my soul and, um, you know, nurture me. Yeah. So getting outside in the woods, hands in the dirt, 
camping, hunting, that just fills Kaylee. Yes. Yeah. Hanging out with my dogs. I have two oh, dogs. Yeah. What kind of dogs? Um, a Labrador and then yeah. a Husky. Oh. And I, and Beautiful I, um, dogs. Yeah. And I, I love spending time with my significant other as well. Yeah. That's awesome. Yep. All right. Well, one more question on this. Mm-hmm. What would you never get tired of eating? What would I never get tired of eating? Gosh, I love chocolate and I love seafood. Uh-huh. So I'm a big, I've got a big sweet tooth. So anything chocolatey and then I love like blue crabs in the summertime. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, how can someone reach you if they're interested in finding more about uh, Kaylee Burns and kind of where to go? So a couple of ways. Um, my email is Kaylee, K-A-Y-L-E-E dot B is in boy dot Burns, B-U-R-N-S at gmail.com. Um, you can also, if you're interested in scheduling an appointment, um, call Northeastern Professional Counseling. Our number is 252-333-4569. Um, and you can also check us out. Um, it's myself and my colleague, Anna Coker. Um, at our website, it's Anna, A-N-N-A, Coker, C-O-K-E-R dot com. Great. Well, I'm hopeful more people will uh, check out you and find out more about you and hopefully schedule an appointment if they're close in the area or within driving distance. I know that if you get a chance to go in and meet uh, Kaylee, you will enjoy yourself and you will learn and you'll be a better person, better parent. So it's been exciting to have you here. I'm hopeful we can have you back because I've got a lot more questions and other areas yeah, where you specialize so we can learn and grow and become better. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us on the Imperfect Leader podcast, and I can't wait to do it again with you soon. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Imperfect Leader podcast with Scott Neal. Remember, nothing succeeds like imperfection. Thank you for listening.